This episode may contain content not suitable for some audiences, including crimes against children, mentions of suicide, descriptions of a graphic nature, and adult language at times. Listener discretion is advised. Friday the 23rd of February 1968 was a cold, frost-covered morning when 67-year-old Maurice Goodman, known as Morris, happened upon a figure lying on the ground on Carmichael Lane in front of some lock-up garages, not too far from Langside Place in Glasgow, Scotland. But a sight like that wasn't too uncommon after ballroom nights. Maybe someone had had a bit too much to drink and passed out outside. But as Maurice stepped closer, intending to wake the person, he realised that this was not the case. Maurice stood there, looking at the naked and terribly pale body of a young woman lying naked on her back. Maurice nudged the body with his foot, and it was then that he realised the woman had passed away. As he later recalled, it was like touching a block of ice. Recoiling in horror, Maurice ran back home to Carmichael Place to call the police. There was no way for Maurice to know it at the time, but he had initiated the investigation that would grow to be one of the biggest and most frustrating in Scotland's history. Detective Sergeant Andrew Johnstone and Detective Constable Norman MacDonald arrived at the scene at around 8.10am, likely thinking that they were going to deal with a simple death caused from exposure. But as they took a closer look at the body, detectives saw ligature markings on the woman's neck. This was murder. According to a police pathologist, Dr. James Imrie, the victim had been dead for a few hours before the body was discovered. The woman's clothes were nowhere to be seen, and nor was the murder weapon. The victim had suffered extensive face and head injuries, but Dr. Imrie speculated that she had been strangled to death with a belt. The subsequent autopsy confirmed the cause of death, and even though there were no clear signs of sexual assault... It was believed the victim had almost certainly been raped. The medical examiner also noted the woman was on her period at the time of her death, a detail that may sound insignificant, but would later prove to be strangely important. The investigators had discovered a sanitary towel at the crime scene, despite the killer carefully taking everything else with him. Extensive door-to-door inquiries followed in an effort to find potential witnesses and identify the victim. But despite the fact that there had been a big party in the neighbourhood that night with many eyes and ears, nobody remembered seeing or hearing anything strange. Nobody but one woman who told the police that sometime during Thursday evening she had heard a woman scream Leave me alone, not once, but twice. 
It was possible the woman had heard some of the last words of the victim, but there was no way for the police to tie the account to the unidentified body. In the end, the inquiries left the police no closer to finding out who the woman was. However, a breakthrough soon followed completely by chance when an ambulance driver happened to see the body at the morgue at Victoria Hospital. Due to the severe facial injuries, other employees of the facility had failed to recognise one of their own. But the driver could tell this person was Patricia Docker, a 25-year-old nursing assistant. The driver's suspicions were confirmed the following day when John Wilson, Patricia's father, arrived at the police station to report his daughter as missing after she had failed to return home after a night at the Majestic Ballroom. Detectives took one look at the photo of Patricia that John had brought with him and instantly knew that the young woman had already been found. John was taken to the morgue where he officially identified the body of the murdered young woman as his daughter. Patricia Docker had been a lively young woman with a cheeky smile, short brown wavy hair, gentle hazel eyes and a slim 5 foot 3 inch figure. She worked night shifts at Mernskirk Hospital in Renfrewshire as a nurse. Her work and the fact that she was a single mother of a four-year-old son certainly kept Patricia busy. Patricia had married her son's father, Alex Docker, five years prior, but the couple had since separated and Patricia had moved back in with her parents at Langside Place in Glasgow. Having her parents around gave Patricia the odd opportunity to enjoy a child-free night to herself, dancing at one of Glasgow's dance halls. According to John, that is exactly what his daughter was planning to do on the night of her murder. He told the detectives Patricia had headed out that Thursday evening to meet her friends at the Majestic Ballroom on Hope Street in the centre of Glasgow. Back in the 1960s, ballrooms were the UK's second most popular form of entertainment, with only the cinema being the number one form. In Glasgow alone, there were 14 permanent dance halls, including the Locarno, the Majestic and the Plaza. A newspaper survey at the time showed how important the ballrooms really were, suggesting as many as 70% of all married couples in the UK had met each other dancing. Patricia and her estranged husband had also met at the dance hall, but her failed marriage had not reduced her love for dancing. Now knowing the victim's identity and assumed plans before her death, the police began to trace Patricia's final steps. The detectives began interviewing people who had visited the Majestic Ballroom on Thursday, February the 22nd, and even found a witness who remembered dancing with Patricia. But this person later retracted his statement, saying he got the night wrong. It took several days before the police finally found out that the Majestic wasn't the only dance hall Patricia had visited on the night of her murder. 
Patricia and her friends had been dancing at the Majestic Ballroom, listening to the resident band Dr. Cock and his Crackpots. But, at some point, Patricia had changed the location without telling her friends. Nobody can say for sure if Patricia always intended to go to another dance hall called Barrowland Ballroom, or if something drew her there after the Majestic closed at 10.30pm. That something could have had something to do with the fact that Thursdays and Saturdays at the Barrowlands were Palais Night, nights when only over 25s were allowed in. These nights had a certain reputation. While single people went to dance, drink and flirt, so did married people, but without their partners. If you were looking for an extramarital affair of some kind, Barrowland was the place to go. At the time, people would joke about the attendees who stopped at the entrance to slip off their wedding rings before going inside. One Glasgow resident described the Palais Nights by saying, It was well known that if you wanted a bit more than a dance, then Thursday night was the night to visit Barrowland. I don't think many used their actual name on a Thursday night. Folk were cautious. Anything that happened after dancing finished was usually just a one-off. The Barrowland Ballroom's reputation could have been why Patricia didn't mention this to her parents. Despite the fact that she had moved out of her husband's home, Patricia was still technically a married woman, and telling her parents about Barrowland could have caused an awkward conversation. Of course, Patricia may have simply wanted to continue the evening at the dance hall that was still open. Whatever the reason was, by the time the detective realised Patricia had gone to Barrowland on that Thursday night, the trail was already getting cold. While several witnesses came forward, saying they saw Patricia in her yellow dress dancing with a number of men, including one with red hair, Nobody could remember seeing her leave. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The spot where Patricia's body was later found was around 4.8 kilometres from the Barrowland Ballroom and just a few hundred metres from her parents' home. The police were unable to find anyone who could recall seeing a young woman in a yellow dress walk in the route, so it was likely Patricia had taken a taxi or had been given a lift, possibly by her killer. Despite extensive searches of the area, the investigation never found Patricia's clothes. But they had located her brown handbag and her bracelet in a small river around 100 metres from where she was found. The police were puzzled as to why the killer had thrown away some of Patricia's belongings but kept her clothes. Perhaps they contained incriminating evidence or they were taken as souvenirs. As time passed, it seemed that instead of finding answers, there were only ever more questions. The only potential suspect the police had was Patricia's husband, Alex, but he was quickly ruled out when his alibi was confirmed. He had been at RAF Digby in Lincolnshire at the time of the murder, more than 400 kilometres away. Within weeks, the investigation into Patricia Docker's death began to slow down, before eventually coming to a complete standstill. Little by little, the terrible death of this young woman just faded into the background. Eighteen months later, on Saturday the 16th of August 1969, when 32-year-old Jemima MacDonald was planning to spend a night at the Barrowland Ballroom, Patricia's unsolved murder didn't even cross her mind. Jemima resembled Patricia. She was also attractive, slim, a mother of three children, and she loved to dance. The MacDonalds lived in a tenement building at McKeith Street in Bridgeton, near Jemima's sister Margaret. The last two nights... Margaret had looked after Jemima's 12-year-old daughter and 9- and 7-year-old sons while she had gone out dancing, and Saturday was going to follow the same pattern. Jemima dropped her children off with Margaret before heading to the Barrowland Ballroom, wearing a black pinafore dress, white blouse, off-white slingback shoes, and a warm brown coat. On her head, Jemima had a scarf that covered her curlers that she planned to take off just before entering the dance hall so that her hair would look as nice as possible. Due to the fact that many of Jemima's friends were married and faithful to their partners, she was going to the dance hall alone. That didn't bother Jemima. She often went out by herself and knew that she would soon find somebody to dance with at the over-25s night at Barrowland. So, 
She stopped at Betty's bar on the gallow gate to have something to drink before heading to the dance hall, which, at the time, didn't serve alcohol. Saturday was the busiest day of the week, with up to 2,000 dancers filling the dance floor. Jemima was quickly lost in the crowd, dancing the night away like there was no tomorrow. But tomorrow eventually came, and Jemima had failed to collect her children from her sister. Margaret immediately became concerned. It wasn't like Jemima to fall off the grid, but perhaps she had simply had an unusually long night. But then Margaret happened to hear some neighbourhood children talking about the body in the tenement. The timing of a rumour like that couldn't have been any worse for Margaret. The nearby abandoned tenement building at 23 McKeith Street was a playground for the children, but also a home for vagrants and a place for prostitutes to serve their clients. If there really was a body in that tenement, it could belong to a homeless person. But the fact that this happened, just as Jemima had gone missing in action, didn't sit right with Margaret. By Monday, as her sister still hadn't returned, Margaret couldn't help but head to the empty tenement building to see if the rumours were true. When Margaret arrived at 23 McKeith Street, several other people were gathered around the building. Surprised, Margaret walked inside, where she was directed to a bed recess by a wall on the ground floor. At first, Margaret thought she was looking at a mannequin lying on the floor, but then she recognised the torn black pinafore dress, the white blouse and the bloodied face that belonged to her sister. Jemima MacDonald had been brutally beaten around the head and face, raped and strangled with one of her own stockings in the early hours of Sunday morning. Most of Jemima's clothes were present, but her black patent leather handbag and her headscarf were missing and were not found during subsequent searches. An autopsy confirmed Jemima had been menstruating at the time of her death, just like Patricia Docker, which, of course, could have been a total coincidence. But as the investigators found a sanitary pad at the crime scene near the body, they couldn't help but wonder if the two murders were connected. Upon interviewing people who had been in the area on the night of Jemima's murder, the police learned very little useful information. One woman said she had heard a woman screaming, but she wasn't sure what time. Another witness said that they had seen a woman who looked like Jemima talking with a man outside the empty tenement at around 12.40am, but nobody could say for sure if this really was Jemima. Fortunately, this time, the authorities knew that Jemima had been at Barrowland Ballroom. So, they got straight at it, interviewing the attendees. Several people did remember seeing Jemima at the dance hall, and they had also remembered the man she had been with. According to the witnesses, this person stood out because he didn't seem to fit in. 
The man, who was around 25 to 35 years of age, was wearing a quality suit with hand-stitched lapels with a white shirt, and he had unfashionably short reddish hair. Compared to other dancers, this person seemed to be too smartly dressed, giving an upscale feeling. Based on the witness reports, it seemed that the same person had been with Jemima at Betty's bar before the two headed to the Barrowland Ballroom. But none of the people who remembered seeing Jemima and her companion seemed to know who this man was, and they couldn't remember ever seeing him at the ballroom before. Witnesses later saw Jemima leaving with this person, walking down Gallowgate before turning right onto Bain Street and then onto London Road. The police received reports from people who had seen the two walking together on London Road between 12.15 and 12.30 a.m. From there, they took a shortcut by way of Landressy Street and James Street. It should have taken Jemima around 20 minutes to reach her home at McKeith Street, but she never made it. Although the witness reports provided a good description of the man Jemima had been seen with, days kept passing without any potential suspects in the case. In need of a new approach, the head of the City of Glasgow Police CID, Detective Chief Superintendent Tom Goodall, asked George Lennox Patterson, Deputy Director of the Glasgow School of Art to create a painting of the red-haired man's face. Nothing like this had ever been done in the history of Scottish criminal investigation, so Goodall had to ask for official permission from the Crown Office in Edinburgh. Once he got the green light, the sketch was created based on the witness reports and released to the press on Tuesday the 26th of August, ten days after Jemima's death. Lennox Patterson's impression of the suspect in the murder of Jemima MacDonald would eventually become infamous, not just because of how accurate the sketch was thought to be, but because of the mocking expression on the supposed killer's face. It was believed that with such a clear image of the suspect's face, somebody would recognise him in no time. But, despite the portrait becoming a media sensation, no new leads were produced, and the police still had no name for the red-haired man. Soon, just like what had happened with Patricia Docker's murder investigation, Jemima's case also hit a brick wall. And then, just two months after the second murder, yet another young woman lost her life. Twenty-nine-year-old Helen Puttock had just returned to Glasgow with her husband, George, and their two young children after a long stay in Germany. George was a corporal in the British Army, and Helen had initially followed her husband. But in the end, army life just wasn't for her, 
So by 1969, Helen and the couple's two sons, David and Michael, had moved back to Glasgow to live with her mother temporarily at Earl Street. To be closer to his family, George applied for a posting near Glasgow. But in the meantime, he spent all his leaves with his wife and children. On Thursday, the 30th of October, 1969, George was at home in Glasgow. And on that night, Helen wanted to go out dancing with her older sister, Jeannie Langford. George wasn't too keen on Helen going out without him feeling dancing was a rather inappropriate thing to do as a married woman. But Helen managed to convince George about the idea, explaining she just wanted to enjoy herself and have fun with her sister. It wasn't like Helen had a lot of free time for herself as a mother of a five-year-old and an infant. Before Helen and Jeannie left for the bus at around 8pm, George gave his wife 10 shillings to use for a taxi back home. Helen, who was wearing a black sleeveless dress, black shoes and a fake fur coat, smiled and assured her husband that she would not stay out too late. In the city centre, the two sisters visited a few taverns for drinks before heading to the Barrowland Ballroom, where they arrived at approximately 10pm. Although Helen and Jeannie had heard about the murder of Jemima MacDonald just ten weeks earlier and the possible connection to the death of another young woman, neither were particularly worried. Unlike Jemima and Patricia, the sisters were not alone and would look after each other. What could go wrong? The following morning, at 7.30am, a man named Archibald McIntyre was walking his dog along Earl Street into the enclosed garden behind the apartment buildings. It was then that Archibald's dog began sniffing as if there was something left laying on the ground. Archibald followed his dog and soon stumbled upon a grisly scene, a body of a young woman with a pair of stockings knotted around her neck. When the police arrived at the scene, they discovered the woman lying face down on the ground with her clothes torn and her face so badly beaten she was unrecognisable. A medical examiner later confirmed the woman had been raped and strangled to death. She also had bite marks on her body. Some reports say they were found on her wrists and some say on her buttocks and thigh. And there was something else too. She had been menstruating at the time of her death. A sanitary pad was found placed underneath the woman's left armpit and a semen stain was found on her thighs. The similarities to the deaths of Jemima MacDonald and Patricia Docker didn't go unnoticed. It began to seem like there was a serial killer on the loose in Glasgow. After the discovery of the body, the police set up an incident caravan outside the door of 95 Earl Street. When George Puttock woke up that morning and realised his wife had still not returned home, he glanced out of the window and noticed the caravan. While George didn't know why the police were in his neighbourhood, 
he was glad that he could go and speak with an officer straight away about Helen being missing. So George approached the caravan and explained the situation to the nearest officer, who then asked what Helen had been wearing the night before. As soon as George mentioned the fake fur coat, it was realised the badly beaten body belonged to Helen Puttock. Naturally, the police immediately wanted to speak with Jeannie Langford, the person who had gone out with Helen and supposedly stayed with her the whole night. Jeannie, however, was so distraught upon hearing the news about her sister's death that it took a while before the detectives were even able to interview her. But when they did, it was soon learned that Jeannie had not only seen the potential suspect, she had also spoken and shared a taxi with him. According to Jeannie, as soon as they had arrived at the Barrowland Ballroom, she got together with a gentleman who said his name was John. Helen had also found herself a companion, a tall young man who appeared suave and a little sophisticated. The four of them danced and chatted, and the women laughed after learning that both of the men were called John, or so they claimed. It wasn't strange for people to use aliases during over 25 nights, and based on Helen's partner's behaviour, Jeannie felt like he wasn't completely honest, as she later recalled, I don't believe either of them were called John. In fact, the man I was dancing with was first to introduce himself to others. When it came to Helen's partner, he seemed to pause for a second or two before giving his name as John. He seemed a bit apprehensive, and it was the only time I saw him look less than confident because he seemed so certain of himself in every other way. Neither Jeannie nor Helen really cared about whether these men were named John or something else, or if they were married or not. The two sisters just wanted to dance and have some fun. The four spent just over an hour together at the Barrowland before it was time to leave at 11.30pm. On their way out, Jeannie tried to buy cigarettes from a vending machine, but lost her money due to a malfunction. Jeannie later explained to the police that at this point, her sister's red-haired companion became a bit overly irritated and demanded to speak with a manager. But not at any point was this person outraged or shouting. Instead, he spoke in a collected manner, sounding like a schoolteacher speaking to a young child. While Jeannie thought John would end up being kicked out by a bouncer because of speaking to the manager in the way that he did, the manager actually agreed with him and said Jeannie should return the following day to get her refund. So the four continued on their way, Helen's John murmuring something along the lines of My father says these places are dens of iniquity. Outside, Helen, red-haired John and Jeannie walked towards Glasgow Cross to hail a taxi, while the other John headed to the city centre as he intended to catch a bus to Castle Milk. During the 20-minute drive back to Scotstone, Jeannie noted that John seemed even more irritated than before. But 
perhaps it was just because she was basically a third wheel in this man's eyes. Jeannie later told the detectives that this John was approximately 25 to 30 years old, tall, somewhere around 6 feet, with a medium build. He had light auburn reddish hair brushed to the right and greyish blue eyes. Jeannie also noticed that John had good teeth with one imperfection. One of his teeth on the upper right jaw was overlapping the next tooth. That night, John was wearing a brownish flecked single-breast suit, a knee-length brownish coat of tweed or gabardine, a light blue shirt and a dark tie with red diagonal stripes. Jeannie recalled John having a metal badge on the lapel of his jacket that he was constantly touching and rubbing for one reason or another, and he had been smoking cigarettes from the brand Embassy. While John had shared very little about himself back at Barrowland, in the taxi, he told the two sisters his surname was either Templeton or Sempleson. He lived in the Castle Milk area with a relative, and he was unmarried. Strangely, when Jeannie asked if John liked dancing, he became almost angry, speaking about, quote, adulterous women attending the city's dance halls. John said he had been raised in a very strict religious household, which explained his habit of quoting religious scripture throughout the conversation. When Jeannie asked John what he was planning to do on New Year's Eve or Hogmanay, as the Scottish say, he replied, quote, I don't dance at Hogmanay, I pray. It was around 12.30am on Friday night when the cab driver left Jeannie at her home on Kelso Street before taking John and Helen to Earl Street. Jeannie found it strange that John insisted the driver took her home first, about 800 metres further on. And when Jeannie was saying goodbye to Helen, telling her she would see her the following week, John had slammed the door closed, basically in the middle of her sentence. The taxi then stopped outside 95 Earl Street. The driver told the police that Helen had gotten out of the vehicle and walked toward her home without looking back, while John paid for the fare and headed after her. An hour and a half later, a number six bus stopped between Gardner Street and Fortrose Street and picked up one passenger. The young man with red hair stepped in, seemingly embarrassed by his appearance, looking like he had been in a fight. He had a red scratch on his face and his jacket was all muddy. Witnesses on the bus remembered this person repeatedly tucking a short cuff of one of his sleeves into his jacket sleeve, which was a significant observation as a man's cufflink had been found next to Helen Puttock's body. The man exited the bus a short time later and was last seen walking towards the public ferry to cross the River Clyde to the south of the city. A few days later, the Glasgow newspapers began publishing articles about the Bible-quoting killer alongside Jeannie's description of John. 
Before long, this individual was given the name that we still know today, more than five decades later, Bible John. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. After Helen's death, the police were sure that they were hot on the trail of Bible John and would catch him at any moment. There were too many witnesses and detailed descriptions of his appearance and behavior for him to go unidentified for much longer. Jeannie was shown the portrait made by George Lennox Patterson, which she commented on by saying, My whole inside just churned. To me, the resemblance was there. It's a funny feeling, It's like something just turns in your guts, you know? It's like a wee kind of shiver of something. When I saw that, I thought, God, that's a terrific resemblance. Jeannie's reaction seemed to confirm that whoever had killed her sister was also responsible for the death of Jemima MacDonald. George and Jeannie worked together to improve the painting of Bible John and make it even more accurate. This time, George created a full-colour version that was sent to the press and widely distributed throughout the United Kingdom. Jeannie also helped Glasgow City Police photo-fit technicians to create another composite image of Bible John's face. Due to the fact that this man had been seen wearing a type of watch favoured by servicemen and because of his short and neat hair, 
Bible John's picture and description were also sent to British Army bases and Royal Navy ships. The authorities felt confident that Bible John's reign of terror would finally come to an end. The appeals resulted in numerous reports from witnesses who had seen, or thought they had seen, the man known as Bible John. The police spent countless hours investigating these leads and bringing in four men for lineups. But Jeannie didn't recognise any of them. Meanwhile, the Barrowland became a stakeout point where 16 police officers kept an eye on the attendees of the over-25 nights. Given the fact that the investigators had to do everything in their power to blend in, the press eventually dubbed the group as Marine Formation Dance Teams. Constable Bruce Forsyth later told a local newspaper, When this inquiry started, I could hardly dance a step. Now I get better every week. But while the officers' dancing skills improved, they failed to identify any viable suspects. The same results came back after detectives analysed British military and NATO records. It was thought that because Patricia and Jemima had been killed 18 months apart, that Bible John may have been posted abroad during that time. But in the end, nothing helpful was found. The police also spoke with over 450 hairdressers in and around Glasgow, in addition to numerous tailors and dentists. Bible John's hairstyle wasn't typical for the era, but none of the barbers remembered a client matching his description. The dentist's offices provided records of over 5,000 patients with an overlapping front tooth in the upper jaw. But in the end, the inquiry proved fruitless. All 5,000 men were located and cleared. And it was not just Bible John that the police were keen to locate. They couldn't find the other John either. The detectives wanted to speak with him, as he was the only other person who had spent time in Bible John's presence that was still alive. The second John eventually became known as Castle Milk John because of where he was headed after the night out. The authorities spent a lot of time looking for this individual, but it was thought that Castle Milk John was purposefully avoiding the police because he didn't want anyone to find out he had been at Barrowland that night. Perhaps he was a married man who had used a false name and refused to help with the murder investigation so that his actions would not become public. Whatever his reason, the fact was that Castle Milk John never came forward, and this was a big blow for the police. But when one line of investigation failed, the detectives quickly moved on to another one. No stone was left unturned. Officers visited over 400 golf courses across Scotland because Jeannie remembered Bible John talking about golf and his cousin achieving a hole-in-one. Numerous churches were also investigated, but no viable suspects were found. 
In time, the search for Bible John grew to one of the biggest ever undertaken by a Scottish police force. Door-to-door inquiries produced over 50,000 witness statements. More than 5,000 potential suspects were questioned within a year and over 100 detectives and police officers were involved in the inquiry. And yet, the police, it seemed, never got any closer to finding Bible John. As conventional investigation methods failed one after another, the Scottish Daily Records eventually paid for Dutch psychic and parapsychologist Gerard Kruise to visit Glasgow and hopefully help in the search. According to Gerard, Bible John lived in the Govan area in a particular-looking house. But, again, door-to-door inquiries yielded nothing. In the end, the whole psychic thing was described as a waste of time, although nothing else had produced results either. The investigation into the three murders gradually became cold and resources were moved to be used in different cases. The only good thing seemed to be that while the police had failed to locate Bible John, he had also stopped killing. Because no more murders followed the death of Helen Puttock, it was believed that Bible John had either moved away and continued killing somewhere else, was jailed for an unrelated offence, or was incarcerated at a mental hospital. Of course, it was possible that he simply decided to stop due to the massive manhunt. It was difficult for the detectives to understand how nobody had come forward to positively identify this man, despite the detailed description and the sketch. As Detective Superintendent Joe Beatty said after his retirement in 1976, Sometimes you get the ones you shouldn't get, and you don't get the ones you should. This was one we should have got. We knew so much about him. It is quite incredible that this man has eluded us. Still, over the years, some names have popped up as potential suspects. One of them was a man known as John White. This individual was arrested in late 1969 outside the Barrowland Ballroom following an argument with a woman. Detective Les Brown, who was present at the time, noted John's resemblance to Bible John and he was taken to be questioned. But there was one obvious issue. John White didn't have a notably overlapping front tooth. Still, He was considered a viable suspect for the Bible John murders for quite some time. Detective Brown's suspicions were further raised because John White's name wasn't really John White, but John Edgar. He had also given a false address to the police, but in the end, no evidence was found to link him to any of the crimes and he was released without charge. Years later, after Detective Brown published an autobiography including a chapter about John White, John Edgar contacted the authorities and offered to provide a DNA sample to clear his name. 
Apparently, this was never done, but it seems very unlikely that John Edgar had anything to do with the murders. Another suspect was a man named John Irvine McKins, an ex-soldier and furniture salesman. John came from a strong religious background and was known to be a heavy drinker and a gambler. Witnesses placed John in the Barrowland Ballroom the night before Helen Puttock was murdered, and he did resemble the description of Bible John. But the thing is, during the investigation, John McInnes was included in more than one identity parade, and Jeannie Langford never picked him out. John also didn't have a crooked front tooth, and his, quote, jug ears didn't match those of the man Jeannie had seen. In the end, John was eliminated as a suspect in 1969, and yet, almost three decades later, in 1996, his body was exhumed after a cold case investigation put him under suspicion yet again. John died in 1980 at the age of 41 of a self-inflicted wound on his arm. And now, after a DNA sample taken from Helen's tights was linked to a member of the McKins family as an 80% match, the investigators wanted to test his DNA too. For a moment, it was thought Bible John was finally going to be identified and the case closed. But several test results of the testing conducted proved inconclusive and John McKins was once again cleared as a suspect in July 1996. Finally, the person who had caused the most speculation, the convicted serial killer Peter Tobin. In 2006, Peter raped Polish student Angelika Kluck before beating and stabbing her to death. Investigators had a feeling that the killing wasn't Peter's first, and their suspicions were later confirmed when the bodies of 18-year-old Dina McNichol and 15-year-old Vicky Hamilton were found buried in the garden of a house in which Peter had previously lived. Once the police investigated Peter's background, they learned that he had been living in Glasgow as late as 1969, before marrying and moving to Brighton. And that was not all. Peter was known to visit the Barrowland Ballroom regularly, and he was described as a smart dresser. Apparently, Peter sometimes used the false name John Semple, which sounded similar to the name Jeannie had heard in the taxi, John Sempleson. After the book, The Last British Serial Killer was published in 2010, stating Peter Tobin was Bible John. Several women came forward, stating Peter had sexually assaulted them at the Barrowland Ballroom in the late 1960s. In addition, three of his former wives gave accounts of being imprisoned, throttled, beaten and raped at Peter's hands. And most notably, he was angered by the female menstrual cycle. 
nobody could deny Peter Tobin sounded like the most potential suspect for the Bible John murders. But in the end, many details contradicted the theory. First of all, Jeannie Langford said that she was certain Peter Tobin wasn't her sister's killer after seeing his picture. Furthermore, Peter moved to Brighton before the murders of Jemima MacDonald and Helen Puttock. Peter got married on the 6th of August, spent his honeymoon in Brighton, and was then arrested on the 20th of August regarding an unrelated crime. Jemima MacDonald was killed on the 16th of August, so it seems Peter couldn't have been responsible for her death. Peter himself refused to cooperate with the police, saying he didn't care about the families of the victims and whether they got closure or not. He did, however, eventually open up to a prison pal in 2021, saying, quote, I am not Bible John, but I did kill others. People just think I am Bible John, but I'm not. It wasn't me, nothing to do with me. I didn't kill them. In the end, no evidence has been found to link Peter Tobin to the Bible John murders. His DNA was tested, but it didn't match the sample taken from Helen Puttock's tights. And so, Peter was eventually eliminated as a suspect, and the police returned to the drawing board. Today, five decades after Bible John killed three young women who had simply wanted to dance and have fun, we are still no closer to solving the mystery. The case of Patricia Docker, Jemima MacDonald, and Helen Puttock remain open, waiting for the piece of the puzzle that would finally reveal the real identity of their killer. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of True Crime Britain. For sources and photos relating to today's case, or to find out how you can access things like ad-free and bonus episodes, you can visit www.truecrimebritain.com where you'll find more information. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.